Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 18 through 25 this morning. It says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. John. First of all, let me say, some people do anything to gain a little bit more sympathy. Really? Pastor Chris also told me this morning, he said, I had to preach in English. I thought, oh, man, take away all the fun. Which, which kind of reminds me, the last time I preached the same sermon twice in one morning was in Africa a few years ago. And uh, I had the great privilege of preaching with a translator. And during that service, we had five different languages going on. Uh, so count your blessings. We only have one here today, all right? <laughs> Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord. So was the proclamation made by the multitude as Christ entered Jerusalem just a few days before his crucifixion. Today is Palm Sunday, in which we celebrate that so-called triumphal entry. And yet, as we consider God's word today, we wonder, was that really a triumphal entry or not? It kind of depends who was looking at it and what the considerations were by those that were present. I find it interesting that it's very likely that some of the crowd that on that day were likely part of the crowd that just a few days later were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Talk about the fickleness of the crowd, mob mentality, if you would. And yet, this triumphal entry, as we call it today, is one of the few events recorded in all four Gospels, which gives us an understanding of the importance of it. Now, we normally don't hear a lot being preached about the triumphal entry, and we're not really going to go into detail on that today. But to simply say that when we speak of the message of the cross, which in verse 18 of our passage, which was read, it says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Six times in these eight verses, 1 Corinthians 8, uh, 1, 18 through 25, we come across the word either foolish or foolishness. Some versions have the word folly in place of foolishness. 
But there is a different perspective depending on who you are in regards to the events that surrounded the last week of Christ's life here on earth. Now, in recent days, we've been hearing uh, a couple of terms being tossed around a lot. One of those is cancel culture. Now, I'm not going to go into the politics and all that other stuff, but basically cancel culture is the practice of withdrawing support for or canceling, if you would, public figures, companies, ideologies, after they have done or said something considered objectionable or offensive. Sometimes we have another word that accompanies that, and that's the word woke. You've probably heard that used a little bit too. What does that mean? Well, according to my Google search, <laughs> it said a perceived awareness of issues that concern social and racial justice or injustice. Now again, not my intention to get into to all the, the cultural ramifications and so on and so forth of that. But as we consider this passage from Scripture here this morning, I think we can see a little bit of something similar going on. I'd like us to look at two different ways in which men look at things and what these two different ways consider to be foolish or foolishness. First of all, what is it that is being considered foolish here? Well, right off the bat, it says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. First of all, we want to consider how men see certain things that they consider to be foolish or foolishness. And what is it specifically that they are considering foolish here? It's the message of the cross. It is Christ crucified. Now, when we talk about the message of the cross here, it's not just about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, although that is critical, especially right now in this time of the year when we are celebrating Palm Sunday and then next Sunday, Easter as we remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we can define the message here as this. It's God's total revelation regarding the gospel in all of its fullness. That would include his incarnation, his life, his ministry, and yes, crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. In other words, the entire plan of God for the redemption of sinners, you and me. Now, we see here in this passage two main attitudes being displayed in regards to how men view the foolishness of the message of Christ. First of all, and we see this in verse 23, um, Sorry, verse 22. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. The first attitude or reaction to this message that men are calling foolish is to stumble at the cross. And here we see the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders coming into the forefront. 
Even at, during the triumphal entry, as the crowd is shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, they are rebuking Christ and telling him that he should reprimand his people for what they were declaring. And Christ says, if they stay quiet, the rocks, the stones will declare. 2 Timothy 3.5 talks about certain ones who have a form of godliness but deny the power of God. That's what we have here. Now, it's interesting that if, as we consider the Jewish nation, the people of Israel, there is no other people group that historically had the privilege of seeing the power and the majesty and the, the amazing miracles that God performed throughout uh, history, especially Old Testament history. No other people had seen God's power and majesty as close up and real as the people of Israel had. And because of that, they became very used to God's miraculous signs, miracles, interventions in behalf of them. So certainly, if Jesus was truly one of God's special messengers, like Moses, Elijah, David, and especially if he was indeed the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, then by all means, he should prove it with signs. Right? That's their thinking. Excuse my English, but uh, duh. He already had done that numerous times. Pastor Mark, just a few weeks ago, preached about, you know, the guy that was let down through the roof of the house, and scribes and Pharisees were there. They saw it. And how many other things did they see? And yet, they insisted on this from Christ. Not only expected it, but demanded it. Show us that you are really who you say you are. Do something. Again, I say, duh, Oh, and what's more, the true Messiah, according to their thinking, the religious leaders, was to come like a mighty conqueror to defeat his enemies with power and might and great majesty. Now, we all know, right, that when a conquering king has conquered his enemies, he comes riding in on a big white horse, right? Big stallion, all in all the pomp and circumstance. But Christ comes riding in on a donkey, humble, quietly. You say, well, it wasn't too quiet. Well, in one sense it was, because think of, it, think of this, all right? The Romans were the ones governing the land at this time. And you can bet your boots that they had their eyes always alert on the goings-on there in Jerusalem. But you know, nowhere do we see where the Romans were concerned about this so-called triumphal entry. They didn't consider it a threat of any kind, but the religious leaders did. And so they were looking for this great conqueror, 
Not someone who'd come humbly sitting on a donkey. Really? What kind of a triumphal entry is that? The problem is this. The Jewish nation, though they should have understood, did not understand their own scripture. The book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, there are a couple verses that talk about the triumphal entry, prophesying the triumphal entry, how the Messiah would come humbly sitting on the colt of a donkey. That's in Zechariah. The Jewish leaders should have known that, right? But unfortunately, they did not understand, or perhaps it's better to say they chose to ignore that their Messiah had to first come to suffer and die before he could enter in his glory and establish his future messianic kingdom. Now, we today, we look back and we say, okay, yeah, we understand. It's talking about two different comings. But see, in the Jewish mind, they didn't see this suffering and dying. Or if they did, they totally wanted to ignore it. The one who was to suffer and die, they had a hard time reconciling two seemingly contradictory prophetic images that they totally chose to ignore the first one and emphasize the second. To them, the cross was a sign of weakness and defeat. And because the Jews were only interested in power and glory, they stumbled at the weakness, what they considered the weakness of the cross. After all, who in their right mind would put their faith in an unemployed carpenter from Nazareth, that means a nobody, who died the shameful death of a common criminal? Really? You're going to follow him? That's foolishness. That was one reaction. The second reaction, it says the Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Now, we know that the Greeks or the Gentiles, if you prefer, anybody that was a non-Jew, they took great pride in wisdom, human wisdom, man's wisdom. Uh, they spoke of the great philosophers and disputers and debaters of the age. And they emphasized man's wisdom. They desired to see proof by means of human reason, by means of ideas that they could set forth mentally in order to discuss and debate. Think about Paul in Athens. Remember that little story? Paul's in Athens, he's debating the, the philosophers, the Greek philosophers there, and you remember how they treated him? What's this babbler got to say? What were they saying? Well, basically saying he's foolish. By the way, you know the term translated in our Bible, foolish or foolishness, comes from a word in the Greek, the Greek word moron, moron. Yeah, we don't normally use that, like, you know, readily. We don't, we try to avoid using that term or something like stupid. Well, that's basically what they were saying. <laughs> 
And so Paul is called a babbler. He's mocked when he talks about Christ's resurrection. What foolishness. The fact that these same people laughed at the cross, laughed at the resurrection, considered it foolishness is evidence that they are the ones perishing. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Now they thought they were so smart. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's as if they were saying something along these lines. Who in their right mind would even consider such a thing? It's nonsense. It's unscientific. You might hear something like that today, right? It's unproven. Here's one from, from Spock, in case some of you truckies. It's illogical. <laughs> it's irrational. It's absurd. And certainly it's unacceptable by anyone who has any sense or intelligence. It's ridiculous. Verse 20, Paul calls three witnesses. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Who are the wise? Well, we could say the wise are the experts. You know, they, they really know everything. The scribe can be seen as the interpreter or even the writer. We might, in our world today, we might think of the media, you know, journalists and so on and so forth. And then we have the disputer, the great thinkers, the philosophers, you know, the scientists. He calls these three wit to witness and he asks them one simple question. And here's his question. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Now, that's a rhetorical question. But how would we answer something? Or how, how would we understand that question? Well, we might put it this way. You who say you're so wise, through your study, using man's wisdom, have you come to know God in a personal way? By use of your great wisdom that you say you have, have you come to know God in a personal way? And of course, the answer is no. In verse 19, Paul quotes from Isaiah 29, where he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. This verse states that man's wisdom is imperfect, it's faulty, it's limited, and one day it will come to an end. It is unable to bring man to a knowledge of God or to experience God's salvation. Impossible. Now, that's man's perspective. Now, let's look at how God, what God considers as foolish or foolishness. Verse 20, God made foolish the wisdom of this world. Again, in Isaiah, we come across a passage which refers to the wise men of Egypt who promised certain things but never produced true wisdom. We might also think about King Nebuchadnezzar with all of his great wise men. 
but their wisdom proved to be unreliable and impermanent. We've already mentioned Isaiah 29. Man's wisdom will one day be no more. It will be destroyed. And then just a couple chapters beyond where we're reading here in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 3, we read these words, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. The wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Men say that the message of the cross is foolishness, and God says, you're the foolish one. Verse 21, the world through wisdom did not know God. Man's wisdom is insufficient. God established that men could not by their own knowledge know him. Verses 21 and 23, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now, here's a couple of phrases in these last couple of verses that I remember the, one of the first times I read this, I, thought, I scratched my head and I thought, really? The Bible really says that? Okay, God says that through the foolishness of the message. So God is now saying that the message is foolish? Well, we have to understand the context again, all right? God is speaking here facetiously. And it was not the act of preaching that was considered foolish by men, but it was the message. So in order to prevent men from exalting themselves in his own wisdom, God designed to save helpless sinners like you and me through the preaching of a message that was so simple that the worldly wise considered it nonsense, foolish. To the Jews, the preaching of a crucified Savior made no sense because they were looking for a victorious king. To the Greeks and Gentiles, such a Savior made no sense because in their minds, crucifixion was a symbol of weakness and defeat. Kind of reminds me of a few verses in Romans chapter 1. Let me just read a few phrases. You'll recognize this. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, but became futile, futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Verse 25, and here's a verse that really boggles my mind sometimes. It says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, wait a second. You're telling me that God is foolish and weak? Isn't that what the verse is saying? Well, it appears to be. I mean, <laughs> it talks about the foolishness of God and the weakness of God. Well, again, we have to understand. This is talking, we might say tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> it's God is saying, hey, Those who call the message of the cross foolish, they are the foolish ones. These words were used to show that in all his wisdom and power, God chose to use the plan of Christ's death and resurrection, a plan which was rejected, mocked, and denied by foolish men. That is, those who call themselves wise God called them 
foolish, weak, base, despised. Those are words we see in the following verses after verse 25. That's whom God chose to be his people. Isaiah 32.6 says, I think this summarizes it well. For the foolish person will speak foolishness. Profound, huh? (laughs) The foolish person will speak foolishness and his heart will work iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error against the Lord. Now, Israel was a privileged nation. I am not in any way comparing Israel to the USA today. But I will say this. We live in a blessed nation, folks. I've had the privilege of growing up in two cultures, as most of you know. I grew up as an MK in Brazil and served as a missionary in Brazil. And I've seen this in, I've been in a few other countries as well, and It's the same thing everywhere. Romans 1 says this, God also gave them up to uncleanness, to vile passions, to a debased mind. Those who exchanged the truth of God for the lie worshiped and served the creator, the creature rather than the creator. And then a little later in that same chapter, it gives a big long list of things that men practice today. And it says of those who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of, of death, not only do the same, but also prove of those who practice them. Cancel culture. Woke, <laughs> if you would. Hey, it's okay. And it's not only okay, but hey, Do it, man. Go ahead. I don't know that we here in America will ever truly know what real persecution is. Having said that, we do see certain things occurring around us that we kind of scratch our head and think, really? That's happening right here in our country? And we should have concerns. I don't know what God has in store for us ahead. I hope it's not what some of our brothers and sisters are facing in in other parts of the world. Uh, One of the countries I've visited is Myanmar. If you've been following the news at all, you know what's going on in Myanmar. And we have personal contact with some people over there that I personally uh, met and worked with that that are suffering persecution, severe persecution. Some are being killed. How should we respond to these things? Well, I'd like to suggest three ways, three actions, three responses that we should keep in mind. First of all, we should not be surprised by what is occurring and what may yet occur. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 16, we read, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Now that's easy to say, isn't it? (laughs) 
And we're pretty comfortable right now here in our country. Praise the Lord for the liberties, freedoms we have. Some of them seem to be maybe on the verge of being threatened. Let's not be surprised by what may occur. Secondly, we should be ready. Ready how? Well, 1 Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Folks, if you're not in the habit of studying this, get to it. We are called upon to be ready. Here's another one, Colossians 4.6. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. That's not a suggestion. That's something we need to be doing. It's a command. We need to be ready. And then finally, we should not waver. Galatians 6, 9, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Hebrews 10, 39, But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Proverbs 16, 8, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. <laughs> One more. Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In one sense, we need to be fools for God. I heard that preacher once say that. Men may look at us and say, you got to be kidding me. You really believe that stuff? Come on, wake up, get real. We are. We are. And God help us. To be, to not be surprised, to be ready, to not waver, if and when the time may come where we are called upon to take a stand for him against those who say we are being foolish. To believe what we believe, we are foolish. We are believing in foolishness. Well, you choose whether you want to believe what men consider foolish or what God considers foolish. May God grant us discernment to know and do the right thing. Thank you, Father, for your word, the clarity of it. And Lord, as our minds and hearts are turned in a very special way at this season of the year towards the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, we thank you for each aspect of the story the leading up to your crucifixion, your death, burial, and resurrection. And Lord, help us to ever be mindful of your word, to be attentive, alert, and prepared, whatever you choose to allow to come into our lives. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.